Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean of Liberal Arts for Southern New Hampshire University's online history programs. Now we've been on hiatus since January with a couple of short updates here and there, and it's time to get back into the swing of things. As promised in our trailer for Season 2, we are going to interview new people, and we will catch up with some old pals. In this first episode of Season 2, my old pal Jimmy Fennessy and I are talking to Kate Schaefer, who teaches history at SNHU, about her research into female spies during the Irish Rebellion of 1916 and World War II. We talk a bit about the difficulties in conducting research on covert operations and on women in general. And then, because we are recording this at 11 o'clock at night, at the end we try to figure out theoretical CIA strategies for sabotaging Zoom meetings. Stay tuned. So what is your name and what do you do? I am Kate Schaefer. Uh, by day, at least my job that pays the mortgages, I write proposals and I'm a proposal manager. Um, but I like to say that feeds my soul is I do things history. I like to write and research history and I also teach undergrad history for Southern New Hampshire University, who happens to be my alma mater. And just full disclosure, Kate was actually a student in one of my classes at uh, Southern New Hampshire University. Was it more than one class? I forget. It might have just been one. It would. I think it was. It was both capstones. And yes, right. yes, everyone. I live to tell the tale. It is possible. <laughs> yes, I'm not that bad. I promise. I mean, not everybody does, though. It is Rob Denning. That's true. Yes, it's, it's quite a. It's quite an ordeal. Um, I like to throw whatever obstacles I can in the way of, of the success of my students because I'm just that dedicated to my craft. <laughs> okay, well, can you tell us a little bit about your uh, academic, besides that, can you tell us a little bit about your academic and uh, professional background? Sure. Well, um, you know, majors in history, I actually have, a, my family has a military history background. My dad and two grandfathers, and actually my husband, uh, served in the military. So it's always kind of been an interest in mine. But it wasn't really until I started thinking about uh, women in the military, how women serve and how that's changed that I really wanted to start researching it more. Um, I've been published in a couple places, one uh, Historic UK based on uh, some of my research on um, Irish women in the revolutions. And then I've also been published uh, here and there on uh, women in the special operations executive and also uh, women's land army and the uh, lumberjills who served uh, during World War II. Um, to me, it's just amazing because it seems like there's so many more stories that you just peel back the surface and they're there. Um, in your World War II, you, you, you go into a bookstore, you go in a library and there's shelves and upon shelves upon shelves. And then you'll see there might be two books of like women's contributions. Then a couple of years later, they'll find something else and there'll be more. It's just, um, it almost, it's almost like the past keeps coming alive more and more as we realize more and more the players who haven't really gotten their fair due in the story. And I think that's what keeps me coming back. Very cool. And so, um, as we mentioned a minute ago, you were a uh, student in my uh, capstone course. So you want to tell us a little bit about that project? What was um, what was the topic and what did you do with that? Sure. Well, my uh, topic was on uh, women in the Irish Revolution, uh, basically how they used their femininity and actually rejected it in order to be successful when they were acting as, as spies, as couriers. Um, some women ran guns with interesting impacts. Um, you, you see through the history that women are just become or situate themselves in places where they're really not supposed to be, according to society. And those kind of are the places where they begin to shine. Um, one of the things like that I studied in, the, um, in my, the thesis was that these women, whether they dressed up as men or they dressed as women, people just completely underestimated them. And that was like their biggest power. It wasn't that their femininity was the reason that kept them from being considered you know, viable combatants and actual veterans after the war. But during the war, it was probably their biggest weapon and their biggest shield because it was the thing that allowed them to, to act in you know, this space that was supposed to be male. It's, that's a great point. Um, just thinking through the names that you know, constantly come to mind when you're thinking about 
I mean, not even just military history and revolutionary history, but even Irish revolutionary history. I mean, you've got the big names, right? You've got James Connolly. Um, you've got um, Michael Collins, not the uh, not the astronaut, but the other one. Um, but what about people like, oh, and I always mispronounce her name, um, Constance, is it Markievicz or? Markievicz, yes. Markievicz, yeah. yeah. Um, how, often, how often does she actually, I mean, probably more often, than not now when you're discussing it, but for a long time, how often did she pop up in uh, in the chronicles of Irish history? And and also when you dig a little deeper into it, it's how many how much were these women actually kind of covered up by you know the forces or the groups that they actually supported? I mean Elizabeth Farrell was the woman who accompanied Padraig Pierce to give the um, the final uh, surrender to the British Army after the rising was formed. And she was literally like airbrushed Stalin style out of the photograph where there's a photograph where you see her feet and part of her cloak and dress where she's standing kind of on the right side of like away from the camera. And then the, the official photograph that was you know published in the newspapers, her dress and her feet are airbrushed out. It's, it's crazy. It's, hmm. it's just, of course, she later herself later explained that she was happy for that to happen because she didn't want her presence to um, to blunt the impact of of Padre Pierce, of course. You know, at that point, he was the martyr, <laughs> mm-hmm. one of the martyrs of 1916. But um, I don't know if that were me, I'm like, wait a minute, I was there too. What do you mean you just got rid of me? But um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's strange. It, it's weird. I think more and more we are hearing the stories, but um, I mean. Markovitz, we will hear a lot more of, but also she was rich and eccentric, which also makes really, really good remembering in history. <laughs> it, it, it makes for great stories, right? Not only the um, in the historical annals, but also in historical narratives. It's uh, was uh, the Rising of the Moon, and I'm going to forget who wrote it, but it's this um, this historical retelling of of what happened um, around 1916, and she plays a prominent role. But it's it's also historical fiction um i'm well it's it's non-fiction obviously but it's told in um in narrative form so she plays because she is so eccentric or was uh she plays a prominent role in that novel but but yeah when you dive back into like the official histories um she does pop up here and there but yeah she just she's just such an interesting character too yeah i mean her famous quote about telling women to put their jewels in the bank and to carry a revolver well, that's great, but what if you don't have jewels or an access to a revolver? <laughs> it kind of cut, it cut some of the people out of the revolution. So, I mean, there were women who just were, you know, come hell or high water, we're going to be involved. And, I mean, they may not have been considered uh, part of Connie's citizen army trained to be a sniper like Markovitz, but, uh, but they were there. And whether they were abandoning people or, or going carrying from spot to spot, they were acting. So we've got a bit of class and uh, gender going on there and all in one person. Exactly. So what got you initially interested in the topic? Like all great academic pursuits, my love of Irish history actually started with a really mediocre Tom Cruise movie. Oh, <laughs> do tell. I don't know. <laughs> if you remember, there's a movie with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman called Far and Away. That's a, oh. it, there's there's no, there's really no redeeming history about it. <laughs> um, I mean, honestly, they, they, there's only one thing that was real. And luckily that was the thing that kind of hits my wagon too. But um, there's one part where a character tells Tom Cruise's character about the, he calls the Captain Midnight, the Moonlight, the, the rebel code um, that they were using when um, the Irish farmers were trying to overthrow their landlords. Well, of course, I'm like, Captain Moonlight, that can't be real. I mean, nothing else in the movie is real, but it was. <laughs> and it was just fascinating to me to find out that that something that I saw uh, in the movie was, was real. The more I dug into it, the more I realized about the famine, about um, the different types of uh, revolutions leading up to 1916. Uh, then studying about 1916, and then kind of within the edges, you see the women that are there as well. Um, Michael Collins, as we spoke of him before, I mean, he was the kind of the brains of the operation as far as guerrilla warfare 
um, during the Anglo-Irish War that followed um, the Rising. But he actually is very accepting of using women as spies. He saw the promise of these people that would be completely underestimated. So he had spies in Dublin Castle. He had women who were running safe houses. He had women who were collecting intelligence for different places and giving them, um, giving it to different um, groups and some of his colleagues. In fact, one of my favorite stories is there's a woman named Lily Marinan and she was a typist in Dublin Castle. Turns out that her cousin was a pretty prominent uh, revolutionary and knew Michael Collins. So they decided, well, you know, she's in a pretty good place. Let's see what she can do for us. She was in a place where she kind of collected all of the water cooler talk and the bragging of like some of the British officers that came into Dublin Castle. And she just funneled it back to Collins. Uh, in fact, her intelligence is what was directly responsible for Collins knowing the identities of the members of the Cairo gang that were assassinated on a bloody Sunday. If it hadn't been for Lily Mernon, that would have happened. And it's, it's just amazing. <laughs> it's amazing to me. Um, I guess from very humble beginnings where they came with, with talk from Tom Cruise, but it, it gave me a, a way of looking at things that I hadn't thought of before. And that these were just very ordinary women um, in an extraordinary circumstance, but they were using what they had. Uh, like Markovitz might have had the revolver and the jewels. Uh, Lily Mernon had some carbon paper and a pen. Uh, she had a typewriter. And I mean, she was able to change a lot of things. Um, there are great stories about um, people. <laughs> There's another fantastic story about um, a woman who is running a safe house where they believe that Michael Collins is going to take the night. The uh, British police officer raided the house and decided he was going to stay because he had been tipped off that Collins was staying that night. So the woman told her, mo her told her mother to fake a heart attack. And, you know, the kind of thing where I said, mom, do this. And literally the woman just drops like, oh, whatever. they call a doctor <laughs> to the house. The doctor happens to be a, a female doctor who was involved in the revolution, involved in 1916. Um, you know, she's like, oh, let, let me see how she's doing. And they smuggle out a note to Collins in the doctor's bag when the doctor leaves so that he doesn't go to the, that house that night. So he escapes capture. And I mean, it's, it's, it's I mean, that's a great movie. <laughs> that would be a fantastic movie. That would be something that I'd love to see. Um, I mean, it's just, it's just great stories. It's just fantastic. It makes me think that um, if I were ever called to do something like that, that I might have the courage. Um, I mean, I, I hope, I'm pretty sure I could fake a heart attack pretty convincingly, but I don't know if I could, I don't, I don't know if I could keep my cool. And um, I'm pretty sure I might have, I might have trouble uh, uh, keeping everything together with that. But uh, these women were, were brave and kind of stone cold in the, in the, in the situations that they were in. Um, it was strength that I don't think anyone really expected. I love that example that you just used too, because um, what you said earlier about Markiewicz, um, you know, not everybody had jewels and not everybody had a revolver, but there is a long history um, in, you know, uh, Irish rebel history of, um, of just common people that would have safe houses and provide provide space for, uh, for revolutionaries. Um, the focus of my, my research was less the, um, the war and, and revolutionary period. And it was more Northern Ireland post 68. And you get some, I mean, you get a couple of prominent, strong female figures that, that play major roles. Bernadette Devlin is the, the first one that comes to mind, you know, not only a uh, key founder of people's democracy, but also goes on to be an MP. Um, and very outspoken, comes to the U.S., um, interacts with uh, with the Black Panthers and with the the civil rights movement, and uh, the cross pollination of of student politics at that point is is really fascinating to me. But um, but Devlin is such a major figure. But then all of these all of the women in, for example, the uh, the Catholic areas that would have safe houses or provide passage for, for people who are protesting in the street where they could just pass through the, the apartments and go into backyards and jump, jump fences. It's just, it's like the, the, um, and a lot of them, we'll never know their names because they were just average, average people living that, 
that facilitated these opportunities, but didn't really, their name and their voices aren't out there. It's kind of like, I mean, this is a horrible way of putting it, but they're kind of like the grease that moves history. No, and everybody always really involved in like the, the main parts, the main engines and stuff like that. But without those people doing those small things, making that possible, you know, allowing the space, letting people hide, um, passing over the, the, the information, just little things like that. That's how history moves. It's not necessarily these big names. It's not necessarily these big, big actions. It's this continuous movement that, that greases the wheels for change. It's just hard to put names and faces to it. Yeah. Yeah, that's the problem with the, you know, the great man vision of history that people had for so long is that, you know, you can have a great man, so to speak, but, you know, if there's not the the other people in the room listening to that person, there's not much going on. That could, <laughs> just talking to an empty room. So you got to have all those other people, all those other people involved to actually get anything done. And so do we know, um, so the, the specific women that you were talking about in the, in your project, do you know what happened to them after, after the, the, the rebellion? I mean, like Timmy was saying, there was one that was elected to MP, but that's going to be later, you know, in a later generation. But do you know, among the women that you were looking at, what happened to them afterwards? Leslie Markovitz was the first woman elected to um, British Parliament, but she refused to take her seat. Instead, she sat as elected official in the Irish Parliament, the Dáil Éireann. So, I mean, that's kind of another link to, <laughs> to Devlin. Or, or it's like, I mean, she was the first. I mean, they elected her, and she's like, yeah, no thanks. That, that's, that's, yeah, I'm not going to be a part of the enemy. Thank, thank you for electing me, but I'm just going to turn my nose at it kind of a thing. Um, Lily Mernon, uh, she didn't really want to talk about it afterwards. And that's one thing that you see in a lot of the, um, the military the Bureau of Military History Archives, which is a fantastic online archive that I use. Um, some of the women, when they were asked about their their efforts at what they did during 1916 and then also in, in the, the following wars, the Civil War, they didn't want to tell anyone. Um, so many women applied for military service pensions for their work and were denied over and over and over again, despite having evidence of you know, this is what I did. This is how I aided the war, stuff like that. I was given, you know, this rank or what would be accorded this rank. So, I mean, you'll, you'll have these stories where they tell you what they did and then you'll have a, a pension file that might be six or seven, you know, groups long where they keep putting in for information um, for, for a pension. For, um, and, it, and it's it's wild because at a, at a certain point they're like we're not going to tell you anymore. It's like you know this. I would rather you know that it die than you to take my story when you're not even approving of me as an actual combatant. It's like you know I fought. I gave this many years of my life for it. You want my story, but you're not actually going to give me recognition for what I did. A lot of them didn't, it wasn't even a question of the money. It was just being recognized as as being a service veteran. Um, you kind of see a lot of that also with World War II um, with, with spot women in, in wars and stuff like that of, you know, it was great while they were there and thanks for your help. But then afterwards it's like, oh, come on, it was the men. They didn't really do that much. They didn't, they, what's a nurse do in the middle of World War II kind of a thing. Um, so you get a lot of, you get a lot of issues with, with that of women not wanting to um to to tell their stories and that and that's difficult um then sometimes you have a case where they're not writing their own stories um so many times women's stories are told by people who are they left behind who don't know the whole story or by people who have their own you know reason for writing the history um lily mernon it would be very easy to write that story according to several different you know historical avenues of oh she was this fantastic person who you know aided the revolution she was a revolutionary or it could be written that she was a pawn in Michael Collins game um I think with not having women not affording women the agency as historical actors also deprives them their agency as being historians in their own right the fact that women have been told for so long that their their stories don't matter, then why write it? Why expect that someone will read it? And I mean, I think that's that's really difficult. And it's very difficult for a historian 
uh, trying to, to come up with that information. I think it was especially difficult when you um, going into this, the female spies in World War II, because then there's this also added level of, you know, they were, they, they, they were classified things that they were doing. So a lot of women never wrote down what they'd done because they, you know, it was classified. They weren't supposed to say anything. And then they passed and then we don't know what happened. So it's, it's, it's difficult. I mean, it'd be great if we had, um, I, I guess if we listen to women's voices more, maybe we'll have more of the historical record when people write. But I think we're still struggling with that today, even with something as recent as uh, the early 20th century. So one of the things that uh, Jim and I have been trying to do with this uh, with this podcast series that we want to do or start doing a little bit more often is actually doing kind of like a uh, how did they do that type um, you know segment whatever you want to call it and so I guess that kind of I guess that kind of leads me into something like that so how do you reconstruct the activities of these women when they didn't leave behind documents like that like if they if they're not uh, like you're saying, they're doing class, some sort of cl- you know classified activities, so they're 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 not taking notes of what they're doing, and then they mm-hmm. don't do it later. So how do you, as the historian coming in, you know, seventy, eighty years later, how do you reconstruct that? How do you make sense of that? Uh, carefully, <laughs> I think. I think. I mean, one of the best things I probably learned learned in grad school, but also is of being aware of what. Like when you're looking at a source, what is their potential bias? What's their lens? How are they looking at this? Um, so, I mean, of course, it's great if you have memoirs that people wrote. Um, Virginia Paul had most most worked with a, um, it was a spy. Um, she wrote a book called Wolves at the Door. And that is fascinating telling her story from, you know, from beginning to when she accidentally shot her leg off to her, you know, in the middle of, of France behind enemy lines with her wooden leg, helping <laughs> helping um, the, the French resistance. I mean, she's able to tell her own story, so that's helpful. Um, but then there's so many people that you only hear from hearsay. And sometimes that that it's difficult to kind of, like you said, it's difficult to, to know where the truth is. For example, there was a um, special operations agent named Noreen Yacht Khan. Um, she was actually Sufi. Her father was a Sufi cleric, and she was a uh, wireless operator for one of the circuits in in occupied France. Long story short, un- unfortunately, she her circuit was compromised. She ended up being sent uh, tortured um, by a French Gestapo, and then she was sent to Ravensbrück and executed. Well, you have these stories of. You have Noor's family telling the story. And then you have these stories of the people who trained Noor, talking about her background and what she did. And you see these mentions where, where one of the trainers says, yeah, we weren't really sure whether she was capable of doing this or, or whether she could really withstand with, with, uh, the torture. Like, we really had a lot of concerns. And you know, we, we really didn't think that we should have approved her to go. And the historian thinks, okay, well, I have this story where you're talking about the training of the special operations executive, where it's extremely tough, where people who are not ready are drummed out immediately, that if they do not think that you're ready for this, you would not go on the program. And then you have the story of this woman who was sent overseas, ended up was a successful wireless operator for a while, uh, a while being a matter of matter. <laughs> months, of course, but uh, SOE uh, life expectancy was, was measured in weeks, um, not years. Um, but then her uh, cover was compromised and she ended up being executed. So it's like, are you telling us that you had your your worries about her abilities and her capabilities like now that she's been, <laughs> now that you realize that she's been executed? Is this something you're saying to justify why what happened with her, you have to be really careful of, I mean, even within lots of different sources who are, you know, appreciative of the work that the female spies did or that the women in the SOE did. You have to make sure that you kind of, you try to root out the bias or at least recognize the bias coming from different sources who are putting in 
um, the different parts of the story. I think even though there's there are a lot of holes in it based on uh, women who refuse to uh, who refuse to to give information, but those military archives that I mentioned, the ones with the um, the defense office in in Ireland, it's fantastic because you'll see them written in the women's own writing. You'll see how they were answering the questions and stuff like that, and you definitely get a sense that even though memory plays a role, even though respondents violence plays a role, even though, of course, they consider themselves the heroine of their own story, you kind of say, okay, well, this is something that I'm, I'm not going to take as the gospel, but if she's writing in her own words, these are the ones that I am going to put uh, at least some faith in, that this is, if I'm going to tell her story, I need to let her tell her story, recognizing that she doesn't remember everything completely recognizing that she's probably leaving out some stuff that might that she doesn't want her children to know or or that might make her look bad for the neighbor. Um, so I mean, it's difficult. I mean, we were talking about the great man theory. I mean, we have so many historical figures, Churchill, I mean, even Colin, where almost everybody remembers everything they ever said. And now it's on a t-shirt or it's, I mean, it's, you, you remember these great things that they said but we almost have to go like spelunking to find what women did, what women said. So having actual women's words, I think has been that extremely valuable. And that's, that's kind of what I've been trying to, to focus on with both the Irish spies and uh, the spies in World War II. It's such a great lesson in, you know, historical sources, but also interpretation, um, and how you use sources and, and how you vet sources and, and understand them. Right. Um, just so you can, even if you have a source, that's a primary source, but written by a man and you're using that source to get some insight into, um, one of the female historical figures that's obviously colored by whatever agenda that man has or whatever view that man has, not only of what the woman did, but probably also what role that woman had in society or mentally what role he thought she should have in society. Whereas, um, and I, I really like the way that you said it because it's something that, you know, definitely we need to consider. And I probably haven't always considered too, is even when you have the, the primary source written by the female historical figure, um, what type of, uh, self-editing is happening there what type of self-censorship and what's what's being shared and for what reason what's being held back and for what reason and as as a historian like how do you take those sources and use them in conjunction with other sources to really start to flesh out a full picture or as or as full of a picture as we could possibly get based on the sources that we have i think another thing that i've had to is kind of check my own biases at the door no Going back to my, you know, Tom Cruise roots of understanding, <laughs> understanding the English-Irish uh, issues, um, I think there's a tendency to romanticize um, the Irish during the Rising and also during the revolutionary um, revolutions and wars. But I mean, a lot of the things they were doing were not not good things. I mean, Mernon assisted Collins, but it did lead to the murder of many people and then the reprisal murders of many, many people. Um, so it, it's, it's interesting also, it's like you have to, you can't make them the heroines of the story, even as much as they would like to be. It's like they think they are the heroines of the story. Um, there's a, there's a, another example, something I found in the archives where two of the uh, women who are actually in Common Amman, which is the, the quote unquote women's uh, wing of the IRA, where they're bragging that they they heard about a woman wearing a common man uniform and and trying to to drum up intelligence and they they bragged about that they went and found this woman and removed her from that uniform and strongly convinced her to go away and never come back and it's just like okay well that's if I were telling that story and it was a man, I would think, okay, they're thugs. <laughs> it's like, you know, you can't, you have to just, you can't be subject to the same kind of bias and gender bias that side is why you're, that you're complaining about the women being constrained by. I mean, women can do bad things as well. And that's fine. 
I mean, and historically, that's just a given. But um, you have to be careful that you're not making them out to be angels when they're not. I mean, I have this theory that society paints women as either mothers, angels, or whores. But as historians, you need to make sure that you're not pigeonholing them there as well. Oh, yeah, definitely. They're, they're, um, when we talk about prohibition, I live in um, a town in Ohio that was kind of the center of the prohibition movement back in the um, 1840s, 1850s, all the way up through the Anti-Saloon League in the early 20th century. And the prohibition movement was all about putting women up on a pedestal because, you know, um, you don't want as the thinking went back in the 19th century, women shouldn't be getting involved in politics because politics makes women dirty. It, it brings them, uh, it brings them down to the level of men and, you know, men, we, men, we believe already that we are scum, that we are dirty, that we get in the, we're, you know, we're in the ditch, we're rolling around in the mud. Politics is a dirty business, but women shouldn't be brought into this because we don't want them to be sullied. We want them to remain pure up on this pedestal where they're not, bothered by the frivolities of man by the uh you know the 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 mudslinging that comes with politics and so women shouldn't be allowed into the public sphere simply because we want them to remain pure we want them to remain pure for the children to raise good children to keep the house clean (laughs) but women shouldn't be brought into the public sphere because they are a wholly different species almost that are deserving of being main the, the purity must be maintained for women and and so I can certainly see that kind of carrying over to other fields like that too. And yet they're allowed to use that purity to push through something like prohibition and prevent us all from enjoying whiskey. <laughs> a little <laughs> bit of a conundrum there, but <laughs> women, women are powerful. Well, I mean, it's, it's kind of like talking about, I mean, an Irish example in uh, when Eamon de Valera became president, one of the first things he started doing was rewriting the Irish constitution. Um, one of the amendments to the constitution involved pretty much putting women back in their place in the home that you know you know we shouldn't we should make it so women don't have to leave the house to protect their families and and stuff like that and to say that that caused a couple issues with the women who were uh, veterans of the revolutions was a little bit of an understatement but i mean that was another of like it was like the last straw like how dare you we hope you win this country and now you're putting us back you know in, in the laundry. It's like, you know, you wouldn't even be here if it weren't for our help. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's strange. I mean, it's, it's then, <laughs> sorry, I can get carried away with this, but Go for it. another thing is at the, they also have news articles where people are referring to uh, the, the Irish harpies, the revolutionary harpies that are, you know, poisoning society because they're, they're supporting, um, they're supporting the, the Irish independence movement and they're, you know, they're, they're anti-religious and they don't dare spend time with them. They're selling your name. Like, okay, which one is it? Are we so fantastic and pure that you need to keep us in a box at home? Or are we these evil winged harpies that are ready to just completely destroy everything good about man? Or, or what is it? It's like it's, a, it's like this idea that you can be both things and it not having not having an issue with it. It's it's really outstanding. It's a, it's both mind numbing and completely puzzling to me. <laughs> it connects to that point that you just made about De Valera and the rewriting of the Constitution. I mean, here you have something that the the majority of at least Southern. Irish and Catholic mm-hmm. Irish see as a positive thing um, independence, but ultimately what benefit did women take away from this independence and how long did they have to fight for basic things like reproductive rights in Irish society? I mean, it just, the benefits of that revolution were limited for certain people, um, especially women in Ireland. Mm-hmm. And, and the cost of the, the question of would they have given so much had they known how little they would get in return? I mean, and there are a lot of people that have followed Connolly, particularly since he was you know, the socialist, the idea of really including women. Um, they really thought that there would be a different Ireland than the one that came about. Now, it would be a fantastic yet impossible research project would be like, what could Ireland have been had Con- Connolly survived? Like his plans for what the Irish economy, the way that the political sphere should be set up, 
uh, way men and women would interact in society, completely, completely different than what actually happened. So it's like, were, was there a bait and switch where you know, women were raised on these ideals and then all of a sudden it's like, well, no, those were great, but this is how it's actually going to work in the real world. <laughs> kind of like, like, you know, I, that did sound fantastic and the brochure was wonderful, but this is what we're actually going to do. I mean, it makes you wonder. It really does. Um, if people knew, if people had that, that uh, 2020 that we have now, would they act the same? Would they do the same things? Would it be as important to them knowing the outcome? that they the way that they acted i mean when you have women who are throwing themselves into burning buildings and um just you know ducking under cover of gunfire on on bicycles going from place to place and in dublin when you have have women that are helping blow up railway lines in occupied france these are not the actions of people that are wishy-washy these are not the actions of people who just couldn't find something else to do on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> I mean, this is something where it takes it takes a level of courage. It takes a level, level of dedication. I mean, it takes a level of just throwing something into the wind. Um, so it, it's difficult to know. It's the, it's always interesting to me that that passion that occurs in wars and revolutions can be legislated out into something much smaller once, you know, the dust settles. And so you started talking a little bit um, earlier about uh, the World War II experience uh, for uh, women spies. And so let's let's hear some stories about World War II. What's, uh, what, what was the focus of your topic there? Uh, what, what got you into it? And uh, what are you going to do with that and with those stories? Believe it or not, Michael Collins is the connection to the World War II. Okay. Um, so the Irish issues were kind of a burr in Winston Churchill's side for most of his early political career. Um, yet he he was very pragmatic in that, you know, he could accept that some people, even the people his enemies, had some good ideas. And one of them was Michael Collins. He admired, even though he didn't agree with it, he really admired the the way that he used guerrilla tactics of um, fighting, fighting the British. He realized, like, yeah, this is this is really difficult. Um, I mean, that was really you really made things difficult for us when we're trying to, um, you know, control your your people. Um, so, in when World War II breaks out, and Churchill comes from the idea of, well, we need to, you know, set fire to Europe, set Europe ablaze. We need to have some sort of a regular force that is going to make sure that we can stay connected with France now that it's occupied. We need to send in spies, saboteurs. His idea of setting Europe ablaze was very, very similar to Colin's idea of making Ireland ungovernable. So you have a lot of the same kind of tactics. You have the same kind of um, the spy craft going on. And Churchill, I mean, God love him at least for this, he understood that putting women in the field was a good idea. Of course, not everybody agreed, and I'm, I'm sure Churchill had qualms as well, but probably mostly in how they would affect his political career. But they realized no one was expecting women in Europe. Men could not be reliable spies, particularly in France, because men were supposed to be fighting. And we also had the, the times in occupied France where they were making men go serve for, for Germany. I mean, they were, anybody was being forcefully conscripted. So a man bicycling around Europe, around France, would automatically be assumed to be a spy, a saboteur, be arrested, probably fortune. Women, though, on a bicycle could be going to visit their mother. They could be going to the store to get some bread. They could be at any sort of just domestic things. They really wouldn't be suspected of any kind of criminal activity. So women went through same uh, training as men in the um, for the special operations executive. But the stories of how they got into it can, are very interesting. Um, one woman in preparation for D-Day, which now we realize it was preparation for D-Day, um, they asked people if they had any like vacation, vacation photographs or postcards of um, 
the French coastline. The police send them to us. They're trying to figure out, like, get a, a better geographic feel for where they could land D-Day. So one woman, she, she said, oh, okay, great, but she sent it to the wrong group. She sent it to the war office instead of where it was supposed to go. Um, her name was Adette Sansom. She happened to be from, have a French background, spoke French beautifully, um, had all these pictures and they're like, oh, so you were raised there and you know, you, you're fluent and everything. So they brought her and started doing the training. Would you be willing to do this? She said, yes. So they brought women with different backgrounds. Usually they had to be completely fluent in French, um, but also accustomed to being, at least this is, let me back up, at least for the F section, there were different groups of the special operations executives going to different countries. So far, I've focused mostly on France, on occupied France and Vichy France. So for the women spies being um, sent to France or potentially sent to France, they had to know French customs. They need to be able to just, you know, kind of blend in to, to French society as it was. Not only being able to use the right verbs, something like that, but knowing what fork to use, knowing which way you cross, which way you look before you cross the street, knowing that you don't order this type of, of coffee after this time period because no one does that, that isn't done. Or, I mean, all of these little, little teeny details. Um, so they had to have this kind of training. They also had uh, training in weapons, uh, both in and weapons and also in fighting without weapons. Um, they also were trained to withstand torture. They were trained, they were given training of, um, sometimes they said that it, at one point they would be like, asleep and somebody would come in and just grab one of them. And that person, it would be like, you know, this is what you can expect. They're just gonna take you to a room, kind of see how you react kind of thing. Anything they were told, anything could become a way for the enemy to see that they were not who they were saying they were. Anything from the wrong type of buttons on their clothing to not addressing someone correctly to, like I said, not using the right tableware at a certain time. They had to be perfect in how they were going over there. They had backstories they had to know. They had to know their own um, code names and stuff like that. But then they also had to be trained in what their role was. So in the circuits, it was you had either a courier, a wireless operator, you had a leader. And women took on all three of those roles. Um, the courier was a difficult, difficult role because they were on the move all the time. Now, when you're on the move all the time, people can start noticing that you have patterns of travel and that can make you uh, more conspicuous. Wireless operator had to carry the wireless aerial with them everywhere. Find safe places to put the aerial up and broadcast and stuff like that. Um, they had to know how to very quickly uh, code and encode and, and then into Morse code and back again. And of course, the leaders were, it was very difficult because the leaders knew the most people within other uh, circuits, within some of the, uh, the French resistance groups. So nothing was, there was no such thing as an easy job. There was no such thing as <clears throat> a quote unquote women's job. All of them had to, you know, they had to have the training of how not to be detected, of how to protect themselves and how to do their jobs. And then you add into it that these circuits were kind of isolated. They were acting on their own, even with their own, with the common objective, they were acting on their own. Then you have to get back into the fact that it was so dangerous that they pretty much knew that the chance of them returning was very, very, very slim. They knew that the children they were leaving behind, the families they were leaving behind, the fiancés, the husbands, them, the six mothers, et cetera, et cetera, they probably wouldn't see them again. I think like I mentioned before, like the life expectancy was measured in weeks, if not days, for wireless operators, for, for women in the special operations executive, because there really was no such thing as a, a Geneva Convention protections for spies. It was your spy, 
you're out of luck. I think if I wanted to go further though, I really want to, to kind of draw connections between like the Irish spies and the World War II spies. I'd like to learn more about um, some of the World War I spies. Uh, in fact, there was a, uh, Sarah Aronson was part of a Nelly spy ring that was actually, it was fighting in World War I for the allies, but it was also kind of also intended to help win um, a state for Palestine, win a, you know, to win a, win a homeland in, for Israel in Palestine. I mean, there you kind of see lots of different <laughs> political mechanisms and everything in the middle of it. I just think it, it, there are a lot of connections that can be made, even you back to spy, American spies for the U.S. Army and Confederate Army in the Civil War, women who were hiding things in their in their wigs and, and petticoats and stuff like that, to the women in World War II who, you know, were actively um, sabotaging railways. It's like, thing that they have in common is that they weren't supposed to be there but look at what they were able to do even if they weren't supposed to be there so i think that that's one thing i'm really interested in is you know how how women were able to both use the femininity and use them being female as a weapon as a plus like as a as a bonus thing as a tool um but then how it ended up uh, affecting them in the end, how it affected how they were seen by their society, how they saw themselves, and whether it actually allowed their their service to be recognized as quote, good as male service. Yeah, I think that would be a really cool um, larger project. You could start looking at other, other conflicts too. I'm thinking, of, and I'm drawing a blank on her name, but there was the... Um, black woman who infiltrated the confederate white house during the civil war and was feeding information on some of the highest level discussions in the confederate white house in uh, richmond uh, back to union forces um and kind of yeah kind of the same thing is that she was you know a black servant you know a slave servant in the in in a government building wasn't a surprise and so she would kind of had free reign of the place she would just go anywhere she could. She, they, oftentimes, of course, in the South, slaves were seen basically as just a piece of the furniture. And so you know, they could kind of come and go and they could collect all kinds of information and funnel it back through uh, networks back to the Union forces. And so, you know, just I think there's probably examples like that that you could really go into kind of all around the world in uh, kind of really in almost all time periods, I'm sure there's got to be some, basically anytime I'm sure there's kind of an, uh, an occupying force, there's always going to be kind of the, the civilians that are pushing back against that. Or, um, or in the case of World War II, if you've got British women being sent over to France, occupied France, then I guess they can be part of the invading force and occupying force there too. But you can, you start putting civilians and uh, they can, they can do some very important things. Yeah. I think it's another important thing to remember, though, is like, <clears throat> it seems like in wars and revolutions, these gender stereotypes, these gender structures can bend to allow room for women to participate, but they don't break. <laughs> they they may not bounce back all the way, but they do bounce back. Um, one, of the, one of the things I studied actually at, at SNU for the Russian revolutions was the uh, story of Maria Bokhareva who is the, the founder of the Russian Battalions of Death, the all-women's Battalions of Death, who um, jumped into the German lines at, at the German front after the men um, left for to join Soviets after uh, Lenin um, and the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, you know, it was great. They loved the fact that she was doing it. They loved the fact that she was on the front lines, um, except, you know, afterwards, when uh, Lenin and uh, Stalin couldn't convince her to start fighting for them, she ended up having a, a price on her head and she was later executed. So, I mean, it was, her service was great. She was a fantastic fighter when she was, you know, benefiting them <laughs> in that one case. But then afterwards, it's like, mm, sorry, comrade, not, not going to work now. Like gender, gender structures can bend, but breaking so far it's it's not a very good track record for the breaking yeah and espionage is a dangerous 
career anyway. <laughs> so yeah. it just makes, yeah. it even, makes it even more difficult. Yeah. And, yeah, there's, I, I forgot to I mean, there's a book talking about sources, it's like being careful of sources. Some of the ways that even the most, I, I hope, well meaning people describe like the women in espionage, there's a book called, um, the women who lived for danger talking about women who, who were in the special operations executive. And I'm like, you know, that is not the title that they would put of a man who was in the special operations executive. They would not characterize his service as living for danger. So you know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, of course it was written in the 19th, the book was written in the 1980s. There wasn't a whole lot of, of work done um, talking about women in the SOE. So I guess we should be glad there's anything at all. Um, but you have to wonder, I mean, like, is that itself a product of that time? I mean, of the 1980s? Is that how we saw women spies? I mean, we think we think of James Bond. We think of Bond girls as spies. Well, you know, James Bond actually came from the special operations executive. A lot of the inventions that Q comes up with, that, that Ian Fleming comes up with, were inspired by the special operations executive. So a lot of the you know, the weapons and gadgets that Bond used, chances are some of the women actually used first. So it's just this strange, strange mismatch of, of stuff. It's, it's, it's wild. I mean, it's, there's so many connections and, and it, it kind of makes your head spin to see how we kind of double over each other and explaining why things have to be a certain way, even when they're proven to be a different way. Yeah, this is this is a lot of good stuff. So I, I'm hoping I know that you mentioned that you've published a few um, article length things, but you know, I, I'm all on board with you just going all out on the book and uh, see what you see what you can collect. Um, I, I, <laughs> I want to I want I want this all in one place. <laughs> <laughs> I would too. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, this is a really cool topic, and I look forward to seeing what you do with it in the future. Um, for now, let's talk about our uh, recommendations. So, um, Kate, what would you like to recommend to the audience this week? Well, going along with the topic, there is a new book by Sarah Rose called D-Day Girls. It's a great introduction to the special operations executive, and it really delves deep into several women that I spoke about, but also about how these women help kind of lay the groundwork for D-Day. Uh, something we kind of think is this just totally done like by Eisenhower, all these generals and stuff like that. But it was a lot of the things that were happening on the ground of you know, sabotaging railways, figuring out where things were, keeping communications going. It actually paved the way that helped it happen. So I thought that it's very interesting. It's rather new. It's I think it's on paper in paperback now, but it's D-Day Girl by Sarah Rose. Very cool. Let's let's move on to uh, Jimmy. What do you have for us? All right. Well, as you know, I a lot of my recommendations tend to connect to history and popular culture. Um, the one I have today is Trevor Ristow's um, Waiting for Another War, A History of the Sisters of Mercy, Volume 1, um, 1980 to 85. So um, I got this book as a Christmas present, and I've started reading it, but haven't made it all the way through. So I'm, I'm no spoilers because I, you know, well, I know the band. I don't know where the book ends <laughs> um, okay. and where volume two will begin. Um, it's pretty, pretty fascinating. Uh, there's a lot of great insight into the music scene in Leeds at the time when Sisters of Mercy um, were forming some great, great visuals. Um, and just, you know, if you are into, uh, you know, if you are into the origins of goth music in the eighties and some, some really intense songs um, by a great band, uh, Sisters of Mercy would be the way to go. And Waiting for Another War by Trevor Ristow is a great introduction to them. Oh, very cool. All right. I am, I was going to actually do something else, but the conversation about spies and all that got me thinking about this other thing that it was in the news, I don't know, a year or two ago because it got declassified by the CIA at some point in the in the recent past. Anyway, it's a document from 1944 from the Office of Strategic Services, and it's called the Simple Sabotage Field Manual, which is a document. It's it's 36 odd pages of uh, of ways that somebody can subvert, basically sabotage countries, 
organizations, companies, basically you can go in and sabotage anything. And this is something that the, you know, supposedly the CIA was handing out, not well, the CIA's predecessor, the OSS was handing out to people as a, basically an instruction manual for how you go out and throw monkey wrenches into organizations. You know, presumably this is probably going to be like Nazi meetings, um, you know, communist meetings, that kind of thing. But the, uh, the, the, the page that jumped out at me, um, which I'm just going to read some of the stuff from this page because it's really amusing, but it's, it's the um, general interference with organizations and production. And the, there's section A because it's a government manual. So it's therefore divided up by numbers and sections and paragraphs and all that. So this is section 11, part A for organizations and conferences. And it's just a list of things that you can do to sabotage conferences and meetings and presentations. And so the, the things that they talk about are things like, in, number one is insist on doing everything through channels, never permit shortcuts to be taken in order to expedite decisions. Uh, two is to make speeches, talk as frequently as possible and at great length, illustrate your points by long anecdotes and accounts of personal experiences, never hesitate to make a few appropriate patriotic comments. Number three when possible, refer all matters to committees for further study and consideration. Attempt to make the committee as large as possible, never less than five. <laughs> yeah, number four is bring up irrelevant issues as frequently as possible. Um, and there's haggle over the precise wordings of communications, minutes, resolutions. Uh, you want to refer back to matters decided upon at the last meeting and attempt to reopen the question of the advisability of that decision from the previous meeting. You want to advocate caution. You want to be reasonable and urge your fellow conferees to be reasonable and avoid haste, which might result in embarrassments or difficulties later on. You want to be worried about the propriety of any decision. You want to raise the question of whether such action, as is contemplated, lies within the jurisdiction of the group and whether it might conflict with the policy of some higher echelon. It's just basically this is every department meeting just boiled down into one page of everything that, especially yeah. in academia, this is the stuff that people do, not intentionally sabotaging it, but this is the way every meeting goes. There's always these people that do this kind of stuff, and it's just really funny to watch it laid out in a sabotage manual from the- Half of those talking points also sound like tactics utilized by the um, the new Republican Party. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's a whole other section here about interacting with managers and supervisors. One is that you demand to have everything in writing. Two is you misunderstand all of the orders, <laughs> ask endless questions, or engage in long correspondence about those orders, and then quibble over them when you can. Brilliant. Welcome to the U.S. military. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I'll, put, I'll, I'll post a link to all of these sources in the uh, episode notes here, but everyone can go check out the um, the Office of Strategic Services, a uh, simple sabotage field manual to go out and and throw monkey wrenches into every organization you can. Will the 2020 edition include uh, keeping yourself on mute so that people have to ask, tell you you're on mute several times? If there isn't an updated version of this, it's probably, you know, the CIA I'm sure has probably updated this since 1944 and it's probably classified away in their vault somewhere, but we can certainly make up our own and start adding in Zoom etiquette. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that there is a whole Zoom section in the new one. (laughs) There, there would be, be. yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that consists of, can you guys hear me? Can everybody hear me? Yeah. Even if you can, can you hear me? Yeah. Am I all did, alone here? Yeah. Did they say that they were joining? Wait, I'll text and see if they're joining. Do, did they say they're <laughs> going to join? It looked like they accepted the invite. Did they accept the invite? Yep. <laughs> Typing in the chat, I'm having technical difficulties. I'm going to have to restart. Yeah. <laughs> Is yeah. Jimmy here? I don't see Jimmy. Jimmy? Jim, Jimmy, Jimmy, are you there? You. Yeah. Jimmy, you're on Jimmy, mute. You're on you're, mute. You're on oh, mute. now your camera's your camera's off. Yeah. Okay. Oh, look, someone's cat's in the background. Yeah, that's the yeah. kind of stuff that's, that would, that throws off meetings today. Is that your daughter? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Where were we again? Oh, it's <laughs> <laughs> no, it's funny that it kind of along that I have a uh, SOE manual that kind of goes to the same thing, where talking yeah. about like how to fit into you know. How how to to kill someone with one finger that that kind of thing. I had my da- I had my doubts as to whether that was actually something that was actually given out to people though. So that that that's interesting. But yeah, it's kind of hard to believe that that when they the same group that gave women like a cyanide pill in case they were caught would also give them a very nicely bound version of this is how to do your job. 
<laughs> yeah, I have no idea how if this field manual that I was talking about, I have no idea how often it was hand out, handed out to people, if it ever was handed out to people. I have no idea. But it was just something that came out of the declassification process of the CIA. And um, it's just funny. <laughs> so I'm going to I like yeah. to keep it uh, um, bookmarked just so I can go look up how to sabotage meetings. I would love to know how long it took them to come up with that. Like, did you know that there was somebody doing all those things while they were right. discussing it? <laughs> like, oh, the, how the, long the, could it possibly have taken? <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. The, the calling, you know, it's basically a call for papers where you're calling for people to send in their suggestions for how to sabotage meetings. Oh my God. Or it was just based on this one guy in the, uh, in the OSS who was just an absolute dick. And it was like, <laughs> Just think about how Joe interacts in these meetings, write everything down that he does because it's infuriating and we never get anything done. This is the way to sabotage any meeting. It's either that or, you know, two low level analysts who had nothing else to do with their day who just were just laughing and typing this up. <laughs> so yeah. there, there's lots of possibilities for the provenance of this document here. <laughs> <Fascinating>. <laughs> <laughs> so on that note uh thank you for uh, joining us tonight kate oh thank you thank you it was great and thank you all for joining us today this episode appears on the working historians podcast feed and you can subscribe to that feed on any podcast app including apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, stitcher lyceum podbean or whatever else you prefer that way you won't miss any episodes and you'll continue to hear all the other cool stuff that historians do with their lives if you have any questions or comments for this or any of our other podcasts, please send us a message to workinghistorians at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at workinghistorians and on Twitter at workhistorians. For Kate Schaefer and Jimmy Finnessy, I'm Rob Denning. Take care of yourselves and each other. <laughs>